This is episode number 70 of The Ship's Podcast with Rose Bonsack and Roger Mannix. Welcome to Ships. My name is Pat McAndrew, and I am a professional actor, speaker, and coach. In every episode, we discuss a message related to the most important vessels in our lives. Thanks for being here today. Now let's set sail. Everybody, welcome to the Ships Podcast. Today, you are in for an incredible episode because we don't have one guest. Oh no, oh no, no. We have two guests for you joining us today on the show. We have Rose Bonzek and Roger Mannix. Rose Burnett Bonsek is a theater director, consultant, educator, and author who has directed over a hundred productions, including Off and Off Off Broadway, regional and community theater, international festivals, and in education. For the past 15 years, she has been the festival director of GI60, Gone in 60 Seconds, International One-Minute Theater Festival, the U.S. edition, which is an international festival with three global locations in the U.S., U.K., and New Zealand. To date, Miss Bonzek and artistic director Steve Anzel from the U.K. have produced and directed over 2,000 one-minute plays by authors from around the world. Rose served as director of the BFA acting program at Brooklyn College, where she taught acting, improvisation, ensemble building, collaboration skills, and directing to undergraduate and graduate students for nearly 30 years. In 2018, she received the Excellence in Teaching Theater in Higher Education Award from the National Association for Theater in Higher Education. As a writer, she has co-authored Turn That Thing Off, Collaboration and Technology in 21st Century Actor Training with Roger Mannix, who is also joining us today, as well as their colleague David Stork. She has also written Ensemble Theater Making, A Practical Guide with David Stork, and One Minute Plays, A Practical Guide to Tiny Theater with Dave Anzel, all of which were published by Rutledge Press. Currently, Rose is working as a consultant for companies and universities such as Atlantic Theater Company, Fordham University, CNY Arts, and Stable Cable Lab Company. She teaches private acting classes in Manhattan and is working on a new book with co-author Mike Flanagan called All the Classrooms a Stage for Roman and Littlefield Publishers. Now, on to Roger Mannix, who earned his MFA in acting from Brooklyn College, where he remained for over 10 years, teaching acting and movement in the BFA acting program, as well as co-director of the Professional Actors NYC Showcase. He's worked professionally across the United States as an actor, director, producer, and educator. Roger taught at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University for six years, and while there, he created a methodology to teach emotional intelligence using play-based learning. That methodology became Ludolo, 
a play-based learning company he co-founded that sparks innovation, strengthens culture, and fosters human connection. Ludolo was awarded a finalist by Fast Company as a world-changing idea in education. Roger was invited to Parsons School of Design at the New School to develop a course which uses play-based learning to stimulate design thinking across disciplines while fostering empathy, collaboration, and creativity. He continues to teach at Parsons, currently as a professor in the Global Executive Master of Science in Strategic Design and Management program. His course uses play as a leadership tool to support teams and projects. So we are in for an incredible episode with these two incredible people. Rose and Roger, as I had mentioned just previously, wrote the book, Turn That Thing Off. And this was an incredible book that really caught my attention because it's talking about the effects that technology is having on actor training today. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about the importance of ensemble-based training and also how a lot of students today simply do not know how to listen and that technology companies are actually using brain hacking in order to have a control over the way in which we use technology. We also talk about how phones are robbing us of discomfort. Rose talks to us about the collaborative gene and Roger goes into detail about how play teaches us what it means to be human. We talk about the power of play, how we learn better on our feet, and the importance of empathetic connection in today's day and age. Finally, we discuss how theater can make us feel less alone. So there is a lot of great information in this episode. Really excited to share this one with you. I don't want to give it all away. So without further ado, let me please introduce Rose Bonsek and Roger Mannix. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ships Podcast. Today, we have two guests joining us, Rose Bonsack and Roger Mannix. Rose and Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm very excited to dive into this conversation. Both of you have really had a indirect influence on my life over the past year. You wrote this book called Turn That Thing Off, Collaboration and Technology in 21st Century Actor Training. And when I saw this book, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the perfect molding of the type of work I am pursuing, the type of work I want to be doing. And so I was very excited when I reached out to uh, Rose initially and you got back to me and we were able to set up this interview. So I'm really excited to really dive in. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Us too. We want to dive. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I want to simply also give a shout out to our other writing partner, David Stork, who teaches at Savannah College of Art and Design. Uh, David was very much a strong leg of this three-legged stool here. Great. Great. Well, I hope he's able to tune into this episode. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourselves. What led you to where you're at today? And how did you two end up becoming collaborators along with David? Um, it's a big question. I'll go for the, the haiku as best I can, and, <laughs> and you'll, you'll prompt us. Um, I started out 
as a director who fell in love with teaching and who particularly fell in love with teaching improvisation and rehearsal-based uh, exercises, things that focused on collaborative techniques. And I ended up at Brooklyn College for my graduate degree, ended up adjuncting there, ended up becoming a full-time faculty member and head of their uh, BFA acting program and um, for quite a few years. And I met Roger when he came as a graduate student, a mature graduate student. <laughs> and we had a fantastic time in a year-long improv class. And uh, I'll, I'll let Roger fill in the, the details. But over the years, when Roger began teaching in the BFA acting program, we would collaborate very closely on the needs of the students, what we were observing in the students, and I think that might lead to the genesis of what wrought this book. So I'll, I'll save the rest of that. But uh, Roger? Yeah. Rose was my teacher. <laughs> uh, my background, weirdly, my undergraduate work is in mathematics. Oh, wow. In theater, weirdly enough. And then uh, in 2008, I earned my master's in acting. Uh, Rose was my improvisation teacher uh, during that time. And my director as well. You directed me in Take Me Out. Oh, nice. Uh, which was great. And then hired me to work really closely in the BFA acting program, uh, teaching movement and acting and really... Um, the thing that I loved so much about that program was your, Rose's kind of dedication to really uplifting the students, plural, not just the singular, like the real group of them coming together as an entity and a cohort. So the ensemble-based training was very appetizing. And then over time, we saw things occurring that made us go, oh, what's that about? And slowly that's how the book began to form. Yeah, I would say probably around 2011, 2012, we started to observe changes in our students' behavior. Perhaps not behavior we'd never seen before, but an increase in certain behaviors, a struggle to be present, a struggle to listen, lateness, uh, a, a struggle to collaborate and more desire to isolate. And over time, of course, and then we said, what's this newfangled thing uh, that the students seem to have? And they'd gone from flip phones to smartphones. We started to notice physical symptoms, etc. And again, not that technology is bad, but there was something about excessive use that was starting to contribute to behaviors that were interfering with their ability to do their job as actors, which begat the question of, if we're seeing this in acting students who are immersed every single day in the training of human skills, empathy, listening, etc. what's happening in the rest of the population. Right, right. And was it a, you said it really started to happen in 2011, 2012. Was it, has it been gradual since then? Or did it almost mm. seem like a bolt of lightning and happened all at once? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go first. I would say a little of both. It happened gradually, and then it began to pick up steam and it also picked up steam among faculty members. Uh, Interesting. To say that I was kind of poo-pooed uh, in, in faculty meetings to say, hey, I think we should start addressing this in our classrooms. And then by the time everybody collectively started to notice it, it, it was already accelerated to a point of um, kind of danger zone. And in talking to colleagues recently about this semester we're in now, 
Uh, I'm no longer at Brooklyn College. I left last year. Woohoo! It was my 60th birthday present to myself. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Ba- back to freelancing, which is so exciting. But I'm hearing from faculty members at other universities that in this semester they've noticed more than ever huge issues related to what we're talking about. Yeah, I think around 2011, 12 is when my, our spidey senses started to tingle. And then there's a story that I tell in the book, and I hope it's okay to tell now, where something really solidified in me. I, we were seeing it in our acting classes, in our movement classes, and I also teach at Parsons uh, School of Design at the New School. Many years ago, they asked me to develop coursework to teach empathy, collaboration, creativity, all around using play-based learning. And it was the first day of school. And... You know, first days of schools are usually cacophonous and loud and boisterous. And I remember the doors opening, the elevator opened to where my studio was. And I think there was maybe 14 students in that class and the door was locked to the studio. But every student was single filed outside the door and everyone was on their phone looking down. No one was talking. You just heard this on the first day of school. And I was wow. just looking at it from afar. And usually first days are like, oh, hey, I'm Roger. I'm in this class too, shaking hands. Oh, and you're starting to meet. But nobody, everyone's resisted the discomfort of speaking to another person and shaking their hand and introducing themselves in a vulnerable way and sort of hid with this device to say insular. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it so quietly, so loudly, that was the real tipping point of like, oh, this thing is really disconnecting us from each other. Mm-hmm. And, and if I may, because I, I think that's a really key point of what was, what was the tipping point when it went from mm, Spidey Sense research and we need to start taking action about it. And again, you know, we write about it in the book. Had this great new class, beginning of the semester, so talented, they'd competed really hard to get into the program. And here was this group of 12 BFAs, and suddenly they're not on time to any classes. They're not coming in with assignments there. They're, they seem distracted. They seem exhausted. They're not connecting. When we take breaks, they're silent. And finally, we were, were supposed to talk about some reading like three weeks in, and I finally said, I put the book down. I said, okay you guys need to tell me what the hell is going on in your lives because clearly something is interfering with your ability to connect to something I know you're passionate about that you worked our Brooklyn College students let me tell you they scrap and fight for their education so it took a lot for them to be there and it was like a dam burst and one person started saying I, I'm up all night trying to respond to texts from my friends. I was up all night binging on the computer. I was doing homework, and the more I did it, the more I got caught up. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm social media. I felt like I had to. I was compelled. Instagram, Instagram, and then, um, if I may, you, you stop me if I'm going on. But one of them finally said, "Look, I have to tell you something, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's exactly what we're talking about, and it's what I call the bug story. And to me, the bug story." was the penultimate moment, and she described a story. She had, she had grown up in Brooklyn. She went to SUNY Buffalo, and when she went away from home, you know, she'd live with her parents, transferred in, and before she left for, you know, uh, 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 Buffalo, 
she told this story that she'd seen this bug on her wall, a centipede, and she squished it on the wall and said, ha ha, I got you bug. And she said, every once in a while, I would look at that bug and say, ha ha, I got you bug. Goes off to SUNY Buffalo, decides to transfer to Brooklyn College, comes back, you know, moves back home that summer, and school starts. And she said, I'm home brushing my teeth and I see a little bug in the sink. I went, oh, I haven't checked on my bug in my room for a little while. She went to her bedroom and her room was a different color. And she went to the kitchen and said, mommy, when did you paint my room? And her mother said, honey, we painted your room when you went away to SUNY Buffalo last year. Oh, wow. And she said, and everybody was weeping. And she said, how can I expect to be an actor who wants to create truthful human behavior on stage if I didn't even notice the, in, over the course of several months that the color of my own bedroom had changed if I am that disconnected? So that, that was the moment for me. And, and I am so grateful to her and to that whole class for that discussion. Yeah, how do you think it is that, because really these devices have had such a impact such an impact on our lives and obviously there's some positives that come with that but really the the pull that is it has had over us to pull away our focus to distract us in our everyday lives whether we're in an acting class or whether we're just going about our day or whether we're in conversation with somebody it really is powerful so powerful that it works on us in I, at least, and I, I believe on like a subconscious level, we don't even realize it. And so in your experience teaching, specifically acting, where it requires us to have deep listening and to really be present in that moment, when you're doing scene work or whether you're doing specific exercises, how did the detrimental effects of technology show up in those instances outside of people being on their phones before class or during breaks? Many ways. <laughs> I'm, Many ways. I'm thinking of two things. One, there's a study in the book where uh, they they bring strangers together and they say they're doing two different the a controlled group like two groups A and B and one group they they talk to each other and they exchange niceties and things about their lives and there's a notebook on the table and the other one is the same thing but instead of a notebook there's a smartphone and then when they're done they ask them questions like how inclined would you be to get to know the other person more? How much more would you like to develop a relationship with them? And everyone that had the smartphone on the table felt less connected to the people than the people that had the notebook. So even the fact, and then they moved it with a different group in the periphery. So it was somewhere over there, kind of, that you could sort of see, but not really. And the same thing, they felt less connected and empathetic towards the people that they were with, even though their eye was picking it up very far away. So you're very right. It does happen on a subliminal, subconscious level. That's the insidiousness of the device. Yeah. The device isn't bad. It's actually helped us write the book. We were in different places around the world at different points. We needed to be connected with each other. It's a marvelous, incredible tool to bring people together. It simply needs to have a warning label on it, similar to alcohol and tobacco has, so we can get our use of it. I mean, I think that there's a statistic somewhere in this book, if I may open it up. Yes, please do. That, that this was, you know, we, we, this came out in 2018. So mm -hmm. our research was right before that. You know, 420 million people uh, have internet addiction at this point when the book came out. So wow. that's one thing. And the other thing is, 
I, I remember students doing a scene from Top Girls in my class. And this one student was just like, I, I, I had asked her to do something. She went back to, and she couldn't do it. And then she stopped and she said to me, I literally have no idea how to listen. Like you just asked me to do something and it's like, I don't even know how to listen. I'm like, are you seeing what she's doing right in front of you and hearing her? And she's like, no. And I went, ah, that's tragic. Wow. And and I would also add along with, I mean, the very um, uh, a visceral relationship with the smartphone. When I, we would always, I would always have them check their phones in snap lock boxes and put the box out of sight. And you'd see the heads drifting toward the curtain where they knew the box was at times. But in their actual acting work, and and in particularly in improvisation class, because I think that's where anything is going to show up, um, an increase in a desire to control, like hug the ball, not pass the ball, huh. because I uh, and how the, some of the students described it to me, they said I'm so used to being able to control everything through this device, through this little universe I get to create, and they found it harder to give up control in an improv or a share in a choice. I mean, once they, they got to the other side of it, it's, they, they, they embraced it, uh, but it was initially, I think, more fearful and more foreign. And the reality is, and this is something I'm finding now that I'm coaching and teaching privately and doing some consulting, we're seeing each successive generation of students coming in with less daily training in the social skills of empathy, listening, being present, give and take, and because they don't have that same kind of practice in everyday life that previous generations did, I don't feel as acting teachers we can any we can assume any longer that we can simply come in with a methodology or an approach and say, here, learn this without first addressing where are your humanity skills at? Right, absolutely. And I think something that we don't realize too, or at least the, the everyday person doesn't realize that I think you cover in some aspect in your book as well is that I think the act of not listening or the act of not being present, it, it, it becomes a habit, right? When we're always checking our phones and it's having this subconscious effect on us it really becomes this habit so much that we don't even realize that that's what's happening unless it's like your your student roger where you're in the acting class and then she says i don't know how to listen and it's not until that sort of realization when she's put in that moment that it's really like oh wow this this smartphone this social media the internet whatever it may be has been having this effect on me i didn't even realize it and i think that's one of the scariest things uh, about this yeah sometimes i call it jurassic park the the phone because i go we're so concerned about whether or not we could we didn't stop to think about whether or not we should yes you know something really yeah. fast happened with it because it just came out and you know in the book we write about people who are hired within these companies who are nicknamed brain hackers you know they're neuroinformaticians but that's their background but the colloquial way to refer to them is they're called brain hackers and their job is to keep you on the phone it's to get you on the phone as much as possible. So they, certain apps monitor when you're on your phone. Certain apps have gotten busted for actually withholding likes. 
So, you know, younger people and probably older people go back and they check their phone to see who likes their pictures. And if you see that no one likes your picture, what are you going to do? You're going to keep checking your phone until you see likes and then they release a shitload of them at one time and you get this dopamine hit. The dopamine is actually the searching, the looking. Mm-hmm. The opioid loop is the reward that happens. So it's very mm-hmm. similar to uh, gambling. And that's not only our opinion. That's like heavy research coming out of here that we put in the book that supports this. And w- one of our favorite metaphors in a book by um, uh, Dr. Maris uh, Swingle, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, um, and she describes it as imagine uh, Christmas morning and there's all these presents under the tree and you watch a kid, they open a present. Well, if there's another unopened present, what do they do? Do they play with the toy they've just uh, opened? No, they go to the next unopened package. (laughs) And what if you had a limitless supply of wrapped presents that you were like, well, what's that? Well, what's that? Well, what's that? And how easily, and that's part of what gave me insight into why my students were saying they were up all night. They're suffering more from insomnia. They're getting caught up that combined with what you were just saying roger about the very design of the machines oh my gosh that that's so true i i didn't even think about it that way but it it really is this engineering and roger what you were mentioning too about the brain hacking that it (laughs) the notifications are really like a wrapped present i've never heard that that comparison before but that's absolutely true and when you take a step back and analyze that, you can really see how it becomes this intoxicating cycle. Yeah, it's wild. I, I want I want to talk about something that you talk about early in your book. You discuss trigger warnings and how they are a result of a generation of students who don't have to suffer consequences, make regular eye contact, or feel necessary pain. And I'm wondering if we could dive into this a little bit, because I think that it's it's a really timely topic these trigger warnings and people getting easily offended and i think it does in some ways tie into what we are talking about with the phone's impact on on our neuro, on you know our neural brain chemistry so with that said i'm wondering if you could dive into why you went into that terrain at the beginning of your book yeah. First of all, trigger warnings, they're legitimate. So by no means are we up here saying, no, don't, that's, don't do that. That's not it. I think a couple of things come into play here. One, and if I may say this about Rose and hopefully myself, hopefully, that finding a good acting teacher is like finding a good therapist. It's a fragile, fragile business getting involved with a human heart. That's big stuff. It's not textbooks or calculus necessarily that we're studying. Like people come with all kinds of stuff. So there's a legitimacy to trigger warning, but not, but, and (laughs) thank you for teaching me that so many years ago, (laughs) Professor Bonsek. The thing about, uh, what, this is my view. So what the phones, what the technology does is it robs us of discomfort. You have a feeling? 
Get on the phone. Hmm. I mean, I distinctly remember my best friend moved to California two or three three years ago, and we were at the bus, and I was crying, and she was crying here in New York. She had her baby with her. I hugged her goodbye. She got on the bus to go home. The bus picked her up and took her away, and my hand went into my pocket, took my phone out, and I just started checking Instagram while I'm crying. And I went, wow, God forbid I just sit with how terribly lonely and sad I feel right now. It's not interesting that I just did it and I put the phone away because I'm guilty of this too, everyone. I have uh, phone. We all are. We all yeah. do this. So there's something, there's a, there's this inherent inability to, listen, You we as actors, we need to lean into the discomfort. We need to search out those faces that are painful that's what drama is i mean we write about that like in the book like all great scripts are from that so when we talk about this idea of trigger warnings that oh you know i can't hear this oh i can't be around this i i think that we need to just untangle what's what is that and what is a pre-conditioning before getting to the classroom of not being wanting to be made uncomfortable in any way and drama is here to make you uncomfortable. That's what I have to say. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's, and, yeah. You know, and as David often says, it's not how far you go out of your comfort zone, it's how often you go out of your comfort zone. And so it, exactly as you were saying, if you condition yourself to want to never expose yourself to anything uncomfortable, you... There, there are some lines of work that you can do that. You can put yourself in a cocoon, but if acting and story this kind of storytelling is what you want, you don't have that option because otherwise, how can you hope to develop empathy and an understanding for the kind of characters you'll be called upon to play throughout your career or the kind of stories you'll be, you, you, you know. Now listen, we don't, I don't, you know, we don't have to go, you know, put ourselves, uh, uh, you know, go to war to understand you know, some of the aspects of going to war, you know, there's extremes. However, to put that barrier up between yourself and a whole range of emotions or a whole range of experiences because of what might be uncomfortable. And to me, that's what distinguishes it from uh, a trigger warning that may be rooted in a trauma or something very specific. And when you think about like I think about mostly teenagers when I think about this stuff because those are people who are coming into a lot of undergraduate programs and maybe even master's programs if you want to go higher. But we're talking about the BFA population, right? Think about it. I, If I'm on my device, I determine all day long what I like and what I don't like. I determine who I block and who I don't block. I am in control. In drama, you are not in control. You are at the mercy of the other person, yes. whether you like it or not. Unpredictability, uncertainty, and ambiguity are inherent in our field, but not so with the devices because I determine what I see, what I curate, how it comes to me, what I listen to. It's the friend that I have. That is the opposite of what drama is. Yes. Oh, I love that. It's, it's absolutely true, though, because... I think nowadays a lot of us are using the phone and social media as a crutch and as a means of escape from the comfort zone or, or rather to the comfort zone from the discomfort zone, I should say. And yeah. And exactly what you said that, that when, when we're on our phones, when we're scrolling through social media, we are in complete control 
We have control over our devices. And we spend so much time on them that sometimes that could seem like our lives. We, we might compare ourselves to people on Instagram or Facebook or, or throughout social media. And, but at the end of the day, it's not life. That, that's not what life is. And so that, that's why I'm a big believer that these skill sets that, that we learn as actors or that we learn in acting class are so critical nowadays because you are continuously facing that discomfort. You are continuously putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. I'm wondering if both of you could talk about the collaborative gene for our audience, because this was a concept within the book that I, I really loved. And I'm wondering if you could share it. There's a lot of actors who tune into this podcast, but then there's also a lot of non-actors as well who listen in. And I think knowing about the collaborative gene is great for anybody. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Um, a little sure. Um, when I think it was uh, when David and I were first uh, talking about, part of the book started when David and I were asked to write a paper for a journal that was just an awful experience. <laughs> and, we, and we ended up pulling the article and saying, you know, we're, we're going to take this back. No hard feelings, but, you know, and I, I won't go any further in that. Because that was planted the seeds for, you know, for uh, us, oh, oh, you know, having this wonderful three-way collaboration and, and this book. But um, when David and I were first doing some research for this, I, I'm a research geek, and I came across this scientific article, I would have to go way back in my files to tell you what if, if, if somebody wanted to know. But anyway, in a nutshell, it was focusing on quantum physics and it talked about um, what the, that you know, two molecules coming together and that the matter that held the two molecules together that was like invisible was somehow as important as the molecules themselves and that it was that thing in between that literally made the molecules collaborate to hold us together to keep us from flying apart and becoming star stuff as Neil deGrasse Tyson would say <laughs> and and we fell in love with that idea we said because i think it becomes a bit of a cliche we was like you know we are hardwired to do this and i was like damn we really are there is scientific proof that the physics is saying that even our molecules are collaborating on this really most essential level and that metaphor rang so true for all three of us. And then we said, so if that is what is so organic to who we are, then that made it even more striking when we were seeing changes in actors' behavior of an increase in a desire to isolate instead of collaborate. You know, and that, so that really struck us. So the collaborative gene, this book is still called The Collaborative Gene in all my files. <laughs> the, you know, that and this whole and, and this other highfalutin folder, which which I titled Theater Saves Humanity. And that's where I put all the initial research. And a couple of years in, I looked at some of my colleagues. And I was like, it ain't so funny now, is it? So, um, but having said that, um, we love that idea of the collaborative gene because I think it's something that goes to the essence of who we are but also who we can eternally be because it is who we are on a biological level. And that, that is one of the things that gives me uh, um, great f uh, hope, but also great faith 
in our figuring this out together to be able to come back together as human beings. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I, I love that because <laughs> you're absolutely right. There's this energy between people that exists. And I think it's sometimes it's it's very easy to ignore that. I think that it's easy to to negate what's happening around us, especially in New York City. But there's still that energy there. I think that we are wired to to collaborate. And, you know, every every time I I'm also a bit of a archaeology and anthropology geek and I always put these sections in the book and the publisher always says that's really nice save that for another book and takes it out but um, if you think about when we moved from hunter-gatherer societies to more settled societies who survived the people who you know the tribes that came together and collaborated on survival the you know all this wonderful and delicious evidence of hunting as teams and you know and and creating uh, um, you know, the tools that were needed all together, having these workrooms, these amazing stone villages that have been found in, in Scotland and the British Isles that go back like 3,500, 4,000 BC that are entire communal villages connected by these little stone hallways. I mean, it's it's crazy with the physical evidence and the anthropological evidence. And now I'll stop talking because I get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's all really good stuff, though. And... Uh, uh, I think to go off of that, it actually leads me very nicely to my next question. I, I know, Roger, you have a company that is specifically focused on teaching play-based learning. And I think that play is such a, a strong element in theater and in acting. And I'm a true believer that it's essential for happiness as human beings. And so I'm wondering... How do you believe, or and you feel free to chime in too, Rose, uh, how can play-based learning improve our emotional intelligence and social skills in today's digital age? I'm, when we talk, so my company is called, uh, um, so let me take a break here. Um, <laughs> so I believe that Play, in the digital age, play is nature's greatest teacher to train the mind and body and what it means to be human. Because what happens when you come together and play with a bunch of people? You inherently are in the unknown. You, you don't know what's going to happen. That is by nature what happens with play. It is unpredictable, right? So then it's interesting for us to come together as people and explore the unpredictable together. And as actors, that's also what they're doing moment to moment. I have no idea what's going to happen next as well, too. And if you look, there's heaps of research that proves that recess time is has steadily been declining in the United States. So now kids no longer have a chance to develop the social and emotional skills that play normally develops. So why have we stopped playing? I think that that's true for adults because the brain neuroplasticity, every time you do the, the brain's ability to change and grow over time, every time you learn something new, the brain changes. Those things that you do more often, you get the neural pathway, it gets grooved more, you make the habit. Those things that you don't do more often, you just forget and the habit doesn't happen. Bringing people together to play develops empathy, creativity, resilience, spontaneity, persistence, kindness, compassion, communication. 89% of new hire failure 
isn't is because a shitty attitude is because a lack of intelligence. 11% of new hires fail on the job because of technical skills. So, okay, we're playing, but if you want to talk about the money behind it, you know how much money it costs to fire an employee and then onboard another employee? That can be six to nine months of that employee's salary. And if it's an executive, it could be two years. So there's a real reason behind why we want to get people rooted in emotional intelligence, right? Rooted in these skills that can bring people together. And in 2008 or nine, when I started doing this, you know, I had a friend who taught at Stanford and I had just graduated grad school. The economy blew up. I was broke. I had no money uh, with an MFA in acting. Good luck. <laughs> and I called up a friend and I said, hey, I would love to my friend taught at Stanford. And I said, I'd love to come out there and teach the development of emotional intelligence to your MBA candidates. And I want to use play to do it. And I did it for six years. I honed this methodology and then it grew more. And then Parsons asked me to do this empathy thing. And then, you know, I have this company called Ludolo. And Ludo means play in Latin, and ludology is the study of games. So we put both of those words <laughs> I together. I like that. And we go into companies, and we work with them in their diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, their innovation tanks, their sales and development tank, and we bring people together. And often people are surprised by the power of play because they've just stopped. But I've, I always ask this, and I'll be quiet here. I've always asked this. Like if you're in a room of people and I'm in a room of people, I say, if I say, raise your hands if you've never played. No one raises their hand. So it is the universal language. It's the language huh. that we all know how to speak. We did play signals with each other when we were younger in order to know when to come forward, when not to go forward, when to be with, when not to be with each other. But now we're not doing that. Now we're on our phones playing with our phones all the time as well, too. Not the other person. And that's so well said. Um, I would I would only add um, back into the acting realm. Um, this past October, I taught a private class for five weeks, and we would always start with a half an hour of group play and group improv and group exercises. And at the end of that five week scene study class, I turned to the class. I said, "So, what do you feel?" And they said, "Well, we would like to continue." I said, "In what capacity would you like to continue?" They said, "We want to have classes that are completely." dedicated to the group work, to the play, to the improv. They said, one, we don't, and, and this, these students range like 20s, 30s, 40s, all, all ages. They said, we don't get enough play time in our, in our work, in our auditions. And they said, we, they expressed a feeling that acting in and of itself is becoming more and more isolating. They said, I, one person said, I can't remember the last time I auditioned in a room with human beings. Now I'm self-taping, so I'm feeling even more isolated and more disconnected from group collaboration. And I feel the difference. They said, even that half hour of work we were doing collaboratively for those five weeks, they said, I felt a difference in the work I would bring into an audition room or to a callback. You know, and so, and, and it hadn't sunk into me how isolating the process of booking an acting job itself was becoming. Yeah, it is actually fascinating when you think about that. It's exactly what you said. It's becoming more and more isolating with, with self-tapes. And, and uh, yeah, it, I, I feel like if there was some sort of element, there have been a couple auditions that I've gone to personally where it has been more collaborative and it has been more play-oriented. Not many, maybe like one or two. <laughs> but what's amazing about that is that 
the actor feels like they could let loose a little bit more and therefore reveal more of who they are as a performer. And then that's only more beneficial for the director who's who's watching this. What if it's like a, a workshop audition or, or some sort of context like that? But you're right is is, uh, you know, I'm wondering if there's any sort of way to because that's, you know, auditioning for shows and such. That's just a lot of the way that it's been done over time. And with it growing even more isolating, I'm wondering if there's a way, I guess there are these workshop auditions that exist from time to time, but if there's a way to change the process that is both beneficial for the actor and then the the parties making the decision whether it's a director or casting director. Well, and even if you can't change the process, uh, you know, and I'm not saying this simply because I'm, I'm an improv teacher and I'm teaching, but every time a former student or a friend says, hey, I'm feeling the need to shake off the rust, etc." I'm like, take an improv class. There's so many great, you know, people's improv theater, magnet, who have drop-in classes. You can't go wrong because any of those classes are going to strengthen your skills of listening, spontaneity, risk-taking, so that when you go into that audition room, how can I, rather than have this barrier, start treating them more like a partner? You know, whether how much that can get them to connect with me, I may be successful, I may not, but the more of that play that I do, the more I'll come into a room ready to play with anybody who may be there, mm. I think. Yes. Yeah. And we learn better when we're on our feet. It's not only about that. There's so much learn. There's so much research that goes, you know, the, the, the basis of play is it's, is it's rooted in learner centricity, not lecturer centricity. So the learner has to be at the center of the learning in order to learn. That's all good learning science. Not why hasn't education changed? This is a whole other podcast, but why hasn't education changed in a thousand <laughs> yeah. years? People sit at a desk, look forward, and someone talks at them. That is not how we learn. We learn from actually doing, being on our feet trying right that's pragmatism you have to have it has to be experiential and it also has to have meaningful connections to other things in our lives that's how we best learn and if i may say taking these improv classes i mean a plug to you take your improv class you know listing all these other people is great but like you're really you know what you're doing with this you create the real space for that as well too rose bonsex improv class right there <laughs> Yes. Yep. Be sure to be sure to check it out. Both. Both. There. There's this quote that you have within the book that uh, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it says theater today preserves humanity, teaching us. Uh, uh, sorry, theater today preserves humanity, teaching us what it means to be human. And I think we've touched upon this a little bit throughout the duration of the episode. But I'm wondering what what was it that inspired you to write that and why is it that you believe that? Mm, I'll jump in first. Um, theater reminds us what it means to be human because theater is a live sharing of a story from one person or a group of people in a playing area to a group that's receiving. They are, the actors are the shamans for that audience and taking a journey that either they may have taken and are still processing um, something that they're fearful of taking, but creating an empathetic connection. Um, and because it's safer for us as an audience member to watch these actors live and in front of us, 
it, going for the truth of a moment, the truth of an emotion, the truth of a relationship, the truth of a story of an event that we can identify with, it touches our humanity. And the, in that way, theater makes us feel less alone. And the less alone we are, I believe the more connected we are. Yeah, I don't have too much else to say after that because that's how I feel. I mean, theater is so beautiful because I saw The Inheritance mm. a couple of weeks ago, just part one. And, you know, when it at the end of it, I had that thing of, oh, my God, me too. Me too. That's how I, me too. I know it. Me too. I felt this real less aloneness of what was occurring from my history and that and it's that beautiful thing of you know there's all this other research today that as people and humans we're hardwired for connection it's in us we're hardwired to belong to each other to connect with each other it's part of our dna so what theater does is it allows me to link arms with that cosmic event that occurs, you know, of being loved and held and, and, and brought together by this beautiful event. And it's funny, I just ran into a student outside here when I was coming here and we were talking about theater and I had, I was just, I was coaching her and she got the gig and she went away to play Maria in Asia and West Side Story. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, she's fantastic. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, really wanted to be with people in a class who are like, take it seriously. And I was like, I don't, I'm not going to get the quote right, but it's that quote that Goethe says where he says, I wish the stage were as narrow as a tightrope so that no incompetent would dare step upon it. I and love I, that. And, and there's something beautiful about that, that we need to hold each other accountable to a very high standard of what we're doing in here. And I'm, I, I don't want, I am going to equate it to the equivalent of medical school or law school. I mean, what we're doing is holy, you know, and teaching each other how to open up and be more human. I couldn't agree more with that. You're absolutely right. We're dealing in this work with human beings and the souls of human beings. And you, I, I absolutely agree. There's this holiness to it that it, it can't be taken lightly. And I think that especially now where the world can seem so divided sometimes and we are very isolated, we're very into our own worlds, I think now more than ever, theater is of the utmost importance. And I think it's only going to become more important because technology is only going to continue to advance. So... I feel like theater in some ways is this balance with technology that te technology, like we discussed earlier, I don't think it's inherently bad, but it's making sure that it doesn't overcome us and that we use it as a tool as opposed to using it as a vice or as our substitute for life. Absolutely. I mean, it, I mean again, could be a whole other podcast, but... It's a tool. It is a tool. Uh, um, 
it, it, there's a whole wing of anthropology called cyber anthropology. It's like, what are the tools? Technically, a knife is cyber. You know, what it's an extension of a claw. Well, what is the smartphone? What is the internet? It's extension of the brain. Challenge gets in. Um, what's happening to memory? What do we actually remember, and what do we think we remember? And in the last couple of years, one of the biggest notes I got from either student directors or colleagues who were directors was actors struggling with memorization, not hmm. coming in off book, or really struggling to get off book, or struggling with memorization techniques. And it, a lot of it is simply, you know, say, hey, who won the Oscar last year? I don't know. Yo, let's ask Roger. No one does it. It's like, oh, I'll find, oh yeah, I know. Tap, 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 here. And they hold up their smartphone. Well. I didn't know that, I was able to access it, but I give myself the impression that I've remembered that huh. rather than accessing the memory. So, you know, that cliche of use it or lose it, but memory and what's happening with the power and the potency of memory is almost is a whole other thing we could talk about. You know, the most important factor in any uh, long-term retention, learning. The most important factor in learning is something called retrieval practice. Mm -hmm. And it's about, I'm going to learn something today, and then in a couple of weeks, I'm going to revisit it, and I'm going to bring back what I learned, and then I'm going to implement it. Uh, and there's so much less of that occurring because there's nothing to retrieve when I'm simply just going to find out and have it given to me, um, which definitely affects uh, learning and memorization as well, too. And I know, yeah, go ahead. And, and I would say that also goes into some of the challenges we were seeing with actors and their partners because of getting used to that process of things being given to me and I'm in control, being given to me when I want it, how I want it, uh, in the way I want to, it to be. And we can't control the human like we can the device. And I think it's that practice of the retrieval through the device, that was part of that's part of a contributing factor of that struggle that we saw sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And and we've come, you know, in the book we give, you know, heaps of exercises and thoughts around, okay everyone, well now what do we do? Like now that we know this is cooking, what do we do about it? And, 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 and we come up with some solutions around that. And they're not like the be all and end all. We're open to hearing everyone's, but we don't want this to be, it was bleak at first because it was frightening what was occurring. And there was definitely some pushback along the way as well too. We were called, I think one reviewer, well, can you, what was that? We were, say, come with me here. Sorry, uh, yeah, one reviewer because we include a lot of quotes from our students because we did like a four year exploration with students doing digital disconnects. It was not a graded assignment. It was, you need to learn about digital wellness, about awareness of your digital devices. And so they would have to do a weekly disconnect and then one 24 hour disconnect a month and then write about the experience. And when I tell you, I, I, I read and went through and gave feedback on pretty much close to 500 papers. And one of the reviewers said, and we include a lot of quotes in the book, and he said, well, the student just wrote what the, you know, we think they may have just written what the teachers wanted to hear. I'm like, oh, you should have seen these papers. You really <laughs> should have seen them. And that that's really not, I mean, I get it. You, I, I, I can understand why someone might assume that, but that was so not the case. And the students were so honest from the ones who hated it initially, but the most common response was how terrified they were 
when the first, like the first couple times they tried it, they didn't even last an hour. Some students cried. Oh, a lot. Some students yeah. got on wow. trains, went home to their parents' house who lived nearby. Some students said they had panic attacks, anxiety attacks, all from not being on their device when they tried to do it for that very first long period wow. of time. It was just to generate an awareness. And there were a couple of students that had a lot of contempt prior to investigation. Not many, but some that were like, I don't know, why, what does this have to do with, I'm in a BFA acting program, you're forcing me not to be on my phone? And all of them came to the other side of like, well, I had no idea. I was so disconnected from myself and the people around me because I'm on this thing all of the time. So it was fascinating to watch them have their awareness around it. And in the book, we talk about having this awareness, a discovery and a, an acknowledgement and understanding and action around, you know, the... The, the device and how to shift the behavior with it. And hopefully mm -hmm. we offer some good tools in here to help people out in their classrooms and in other acting programs and non-acting programs as well too. And, and to just to achieve a healthier balance of the use and to not feel, um, as some of the students expressed, feeling like their identity was so tied up with how they use their social media and their devices or how they were being judged by a social media community, by how they did or didn't, and how, how uh, healthy what methods of releasing uh, uh, um, uh, an imbalanced uh, uh, emphasis on those things and getting back to their you know, reality uh, uh, of their day and of their human interactions. And, and that awareness not only led to a lot of wonderful discoveries that they made, in their acting work, but in their personal lives as well. So many students describe how it shifted things even in their families. Wow. Uh, it, which was really, you know, again, not, we had no idea. We said, let's just see what we find. All we know is we want to try to draw their awareness to their use. What is it, if you are using this device excessively, which was a majority at the time, what is that displacing in your life that is important to you that is vital to your goals that is vital to your humanity and everyone knows that you know god forbid we're bored today you know? <laughs> right god right forbid we just are bored. oh my gosh i mean i said this to rose last night i was walking on the subway station platform and just saw you know everyone's head down on their phone and then i just counted and then i had to just stop counting because everyone's on the phone i thought what did we do before we had phones? Did we daydream? Did we think about the husband we should divorce or the husband or the boyfriend we should marry? Did we think about our moms? when? We, what did we do? Did we daydream? Did we? What did we do? And now we're just preoccupied all of the time. And you know, a really important non-cognitive skill is, is boredom, is the ability to stay with seemingly boring tasks and to train ourselves in that. So there's this lack of daydreaming, um, I think that's occurring in people as a result of us. And you know, our, we're so tired. Our brains are so tired from going. We're, they're not meant, our brains aren't meant to be putting that kind of mm -hmm. output out all of the time, you know? So I think it goes back to what you just said, that it's really about a balance, mm -hmm. right? How do we start to have wellness around our digital use? And, and I would add to that too, um, that awareness it doesn't begin and end with um, how much or how little am I using my device. 
okay, I've discovered that awareness. I'm, I'm going to excess. Now what do I do? And, you know, again, not to, to belabor it, but we go into a lot of recommendations in the book, things that you can not only do in your classroom, but things that you can do in your daily life like how do I allow myself to sit in a moment of boredom, what, uh, to sit in that moment of the unknown? How can I bring myself out back into nature and natural elements and what can that do to me? How can I practice skills of observation and listening when I'm by myself to, to um, start to redirect some of those things? I want to be mindful about, and I don't think anyone said this word yet as well too, so I want to be really, oh, I did when I talked about internet addiction with over 420 million people at the time. I want to be really mindful about that because we never brought up that word with our students in the beginning. We never said, you better be careful because you're getting addicted to your phone. Or did you ever stop to think you were addicted to the phone? That's not our place to actually talk about addiction like that. What we wanted to do was give them an arena to just look at their use. And it was the students who used that word. They, in their digital disconnects papers, was, I think I'm addicted to my device. I had no idea I was addicted to my device. So never once were we putting any assignation of addiction on there. And there are bigger issues of addiction as well that we go into in the book, like if it's truly addiction and how to really help that. And there are places around the United States where there are resources to talk about if someone is in real digital addiction, which which the AMA, I think, in the last two years put um, uh, video game addiction or, yes. or, or yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on their on their yeah. list because now uh, uh, rehabs. If you went to a digital rehab because you were addicted, insurance didn't pay for it. But now the AMA hasn't cited it as a legitimate illness. So now insurance companies can pay for it because it's a real thing. People addicted to their technology. Wow. <laughs> this, uh, this is a lot, a lot of great information, a lot of really, really eye-opening things as well that I feel like our listeners will be able to take and implement into their own lives in some capacity. I feel like we could talk all day about this. I would love to keep talking more, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Rose and Roger, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I not only appreciate you joining me on the show, but I also really appreciate the work that both of you are doing in your careers in spreading the importance of actor training, of theater, and specifically in today's digital age, and also figuring out ways in which we can disconnect from technology or rather find a balance with technology in order to live our lives more fully. So thank you so much. And also thank you for the book. Uh, before heading out, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners maybe some information where they could find out more about you and your work. Um, sure. I actually have a website now, and all my students, former students everywhere are laughing, uh, but yes, I have a website now. It's rosebernettbonsek.com, and uh, everything is listed there, and uh, I am working on a fourth book with a, a, a partner named Mike Flanagan, and that will be more news on that in 2020, so, but yeah, go to the website, or uh, uh, you can, yeah, you can find me anywhere on Facebook, too. Great. The best place to find me is through my company, which is just www.ludolo, L-U-D-O-L-O.com. And my contact information is there. And you can start to understand the work that we're doing within organizations like 
uh, PwC and Goldman Sachs and Sprint and all these wonderful. Wow, that's exciting! I really and you know love the experience of um, of play. Great. Well, I'll make sure to include the links for those various websites in the show notes of the podcast, so that way our listeners could check that out. Oh, you think somebody won't know how to spell Bonsec? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. I, I was. I was going. Yeah, feel free to feel free to uh, share if you like. I'll make sure that it's the right link, though. We'll we'll email each other. Okay. Uh, before heading out, I have one last question for you both. What is your definition of a genuine, meaningful relationship? Christ. I mean, that's a whole other podcast as well, too. A genuine, m- meaningful relationship. Reciprocity, you know, connection support equal looking out for one another the time that all relationships are rupture and repair so to a point where the ruptures don't outweigh the repairs after a while and really finding some love inside of there equal so something about being really supportive in that in terms of a relationship as a loving relationship is what I'm thinking about yeah love Love is the first word that comes to mind too. I, uh, I, I, I mean, you said it so well. Love, the give and take, um, the bond that is meaningful between two people, um, the honesty that uh, that love and respect can bring, and you know, in all the different colors of love, um, the give and take, the listening, the care. Uh, you know, it's it's. You know, I hate to bring it back to improv, but it's you know taking care of your partner, and if you both keep taking care of your partner, you're golden. Great. Well, we'll leave our listeners with that. Rose and Roger, thank you so much again. Yeah, you've thank been a delight. You. Thank you so much for having us. Rose Bonsek and Roger Mannix, everyone. Wow, this has been an incredible episode. We got really real at a lot of points, and I hope that Rose and Roger were speaking to you. I hope that what they were saying you are able to take and implement into your own lives. While a lot of what we are talking about applied to actors and actor training, it is not just limited to that. If you are in your life and you are looking for more awareness, more presence, and deeper, more meaningful connections and relationships with those in your personal lives or professional lives, definitely check out Rose and Roger's book and also take into account what they talked about in this episode. So Rose and Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you liked this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share it with a friend, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. I would really appreciate it. You also have the opportunity to support this podcast. Supporting this podcast will allow me to continue producing episodes with insightful messages and inspiring guests. So if you're interested in supporting, feel free to scroll down in the show notes and click the link provided. Also, if you like what you're hearing, I speak very often on these topics. 
I go to a wide variety of conferences, community events, college campuses. If you're interested in booking me as a speaker, head on over to patmacandrew.com and shoot me a message. I would love to speak with you about a potential opportunity for me to speak for your organization or your community or your school. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Ships. I really hope that you're getting a lot of value out of this. And as always, I'll look forward to joining you in the next episode.